This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of The Undying Thing by Barry Payne. It's read by Dan Grzynski for LibriVox. It runs 59 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterwards. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Dan Grzynski. The Undying Thing by Barry Payne. 1. Up and down the oak-paneled dining hall of Mansteth, the master of the house walked restlessly. At formal intervals down the long, severe table were placed four silver candlesticks, but the light from these did not serve to illuminate the whole of the surroundings. It just touched the portrait of a fair-haired boy with a sad and wistful expression that hung at one end of the room. It sparkled on the lid of a silver tankard. As Sir Edric passed to and fro, it lit up his face and figure. It was a bold and resolute face, with a firm chin and passionate, dominant eyes. A bad past was written in the lines of it. And yet, every now and then there came over it a strange look of very anxious gentleness that gave it some resemblance to the portrait of the fair-haired boy. Sir Edric paused a moment before the portrait and surveyed it carefully. His strong brown hands locked behind him, his gigantic shoulders thrust a little forward. "'Ah, what I was,' he murmured to himself, "'what I was.' Once more he commenced pacing up and down. The candles mirrored in the polished wood of the table had burnt low. For hours Sir Edric had been waiting— listening intently for some sound from the room above or from the broad staircase outside. There had been sounds, the wailing of a woman, a quick abrupt voice, the moving of rapid feet. But for the last hour he had heard nothing. Quite suddenly he stopped and dropped on his knees against the table. God, I have never thought of thee, thou knowest that. Thou knowest that by my devilish behavior and cruelty I did veritably murder Alice, my first wife, albeit the physicians did maintain that she died of a decline, a wasting sickness. Thou knowest that all here in Mansteth do hate me, and that rightly. They say, too, that I am mad, but that they say not rightly, seeing that I know how wicked I am. I always knew it. But I never cared until I loved. Oh, God, I never cared. His fierce eyes opened for a minute, glared round the room, and closed again tightly. He went on. God, for myself I ask nothing. I make no bargaining with thee. Whatsoever punishment thou givest me to bear, I will bear it. Whatsoever thou givest me to do, I will do it. Whether thou killest Eve, or whether thou keepest her in life, and never have I loved but her, I will, from this night, be good. In due penitence will I receive the holy sacrament of thy body and blood, 
and my son, the one child that I had by Alice, I will fetch back again from Challensee, where I kept him, in order that I might not look upon him. And I will be to him a father indeed, and very truth. And in all things, so far as in me lieth, I will make restitution and atonement. Whether thou hearest me, or whether thou hearest me not, these things shall be. And for my prayer it is but this. Of thy loving kindness, most merciful God, be thou with Eve, and make her happy. And after these great pains and perils of childbirth, send her thy peace of thy loving kindness, thy merciful loving kindness, O God. Perhaps the prayer that is offered when the time for praying is over is more terribly pathetic than any other, yet one might hesitate to say that this prayer was unanswered. Sir Edric rose to his feet. Once more he paced the room. There was a strange simplicity about him, the simplicity that scorns an incongruity. He felt that his lips and throat were parched and dry. He lifted the heavy silver tankard from the table and raised the lid. There was still a good draught of mulled wine in it, with the burnt toast cut heart-shaped floating on the top. To the health of Eve and her child, he said aloud, and drained it to the last drop. Click, click. As he put the tankard down, he heard distinctly two doors opened and shut quickly, one after the other. And then slowly down the stairs came a hesitating step. Sir Edric could bear the suspense no longer. He opened the dining-room door, and the dim light strayed out into the dark hall beyond. Denison, he said in a low, sharp whisper, is that you? Yes, yes, I am coming, Sir Edric. A moment afterwards, Dr. Denison entered the room. He was very pale. Perspiration streamed from his forehead. His cravat was disarranged. He was an old man, thin, with the air of proud humility. Sir Edric watched him narrowly. "'Then she is dead,' he said, with a quiet that Dr. Dennison had not expected. Twenty physicians, a hundred physicians, could not have saved her. Sir Edric, she was—he gave some details of medical interest— "'Dennison,' said Sir Edric, still speaking with calm and restraint, "'why do you seem thus indisposed and panic-stricken? "'You are a physician. "'Have you never looked upon the face of death before? "'The soul of my wife is with God.' "'Yes,' murmured Dennison, "'a good woman, a perfect, saintly woman.' "'And,' Sir Edric went on, Raising his eyes to the ceiling as though he could see through it, her body lies in great dignity and beauty upon the bed, and there is no horror in it. Why are you afraid? I do not fear death, Sir Edric. But your hands, they are not steady. You are evidently overcome. Does the child live? Yes, it lives. Another boy? A brother for young Edric, the child that Alice bore me? There, there is something wrong. I do not know what to do. I want you to come upstairs, and, Sir Edric, I must tell you, you will need your self-command. Denison, the hand of God is heavy upon me, 
but from this time forth until the day of my death I am submissive to it. And God send that that day may come quickly. I will follow you, and I will endure. He took one of the high silver candlesticks from the table and stepped towards the door. He strode quickly up the staircase, Dr. Dennison following a little way behind him. As Sir Edric waited at the top of the staircase, he heard suddenly from the room before him a low cry. He put down the candlestick on the floor and leaned back against the wall, listening. The cry came again, a vibrating monotone, ending in a growl. Dennison? Dennison? His voice choked. He could not go on. Yes, said the doctor. It is in there. I had the two women out of the room and got it here. No one but myself has seen it, but you must see it too. He raised the candle, and the two men entered the room, one of the spare bedrooms. On the bed there was something moving under the cover of a blanket. Dr. Dennison paused for a moment and then flung the blanket partially back. They did not remain in the room for more than a few seconds. The moment they got outside, Dr. Dennison began to speak. Sir Edric, I would fain suggest somewhat to you. There is no evil, as Sophocles hath it in his Antigone, for which man hath not found a remedy, except it be death. And here. Sir Edric interrupted him in a husky voice. Downstairs, Dennison, this is too near. It was indeed passing strange, when once the novelty of this occurrence had worn off. Dr. Dennison seemed no longer frightened. He was calm, academic, interested in an unusual phenomenon. But Sir Edric, who was said in the village to fear nothing in earth, or in heaven or hell, was obviously much moved. When they had got back to the dining room, Sir Edric motioned the doctor to a seat. Now then, he said, I will hear you. Something must be done, and tonight. Exceptional cases, said Dr. Dennison, demand exceptional remedies. Well, it lies there upstairs, and is at our mercy. We can let it live, or, placing one hand over the mouth and nostrils, we can... Stop, said Sir Edric. This thing has so crushed and humiliated me that I can scarcely think. But I recall that while I waited for you, I fell upon my knees and prayed that God would save Eve. And as I confessed unto him more than I will ever confess unto man, it seemed to me that it were ignoble to offer a price for his favor. And I said that whatsoever punishment I had to bear, I would bear it. And whatsoever he called upon me to do, I would do it. And I made no conditions. Well, now my punishment is of two kinds. Firstly, my wife Eve is dead. And this I bear more easily, because I know that now she is numbered with the company of God's saints. And with them, her pure spirit finds happier communion than with me. I was not worthy of her. And yet she would call my roughness by gentle, pretty names. 
She gloried, Denison, in the mere strength of my body and in the greatness of my stature, and I am thankful that she never saw this, this shame that has come upon the house. For she was a proud woman, with all her gentleness, even as I was proud and bad until it pleased God this night to break me, even to the dust. And for my second punishment, that too I must bear." This thing that lies upstairs I will take and rear. It is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Only, if it be possible, I will hide my shame so that no man but you shall know of it. This is not possible. You cannot keep a living being in this house unless it be known. Will not these women say, Where is the child? Sir Edric stood upright his powerful hands linked before him, his face working in agony, but he was still resolute. Then, if it must be known, it shall be known. The fault is mine. If I had but done sooner what Eve asked, this would not have happened. I will bear it. Sir Edric, do not be angry with me, for if I did not say this, then I should be but an ill counsellor. And firstly, do not use the word shame. The ways of nature are past all explaining. If a woman be frail and easily impressed, and other circumstances concur, then in some few rare cases a thing of this sort does happen. If there be shame, it is not upon you, but upon nature, to whom one would not lightly impute shame." Yet it is true that common and uninformed people might think that this shame was yours, and herein lies the great trouble. The shame would rest also on her memory. Then, said Sir Edric, in a low, unfaltering voice, this night, for the sake of Eve, I will break my word, and lose my own soul eternally. About an hour afterwards, Sir Edric and Dr. Dennison left the house together. The doctor carried a stable lantern in his hand. Sir Edric bore in his arms something wrapped in a blanket. They went through the long garden, out into the orchard that skirts the north side of the park, and then across a field to a small dark plantation known as Hal's Planting. In the very heart of Hal's Planting there are some curious caves. Access to the innermost chamber of them is exceedingly difficult and dangerous and only possible to a climber of exceptional skill and courage. As they returned from these caves, Sir Edric no longer carried his burden. The dawn was breaking, and the birds began to sing. Could not they be quiet just for this morning? said Sir Edric wearily. There were but few people who were asked to attend the funeral of Lady Van Crest, and of the baby, which it was said, had only survived her by a few hours. There were but three people who knew that only one body, the body of Lady Van Crest, was really interred in that occasion. These three were Sir Edric Van Crest, Dr. Dennison, and a nurse whom it had been found expedient to take into their confidence. During the next six years, Sir Edric lived almost in solitude, a life of great sanctity, devoting much of his time to the education of the younger Edric, 
the child that he had by his first wife. In the course of this time, some strange stories began to be told and believed in the neighborhood with reference to Hal's planting, and the place was generally avoided. When Sir Edric lay on his deathbed, the windows of the chamber were open, and suddenly through them came a low cry. The doctor in attendance hardly regarded it, supposing that it came from one of the owls in the trees outside. But Sir Edric, at the sound of it, rose right up in bed before anyone could stay him, and flinging up his arms, cried, Wolves! 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 Then he fell forward on his face, dead. And four generations passed away. Two. Towards the latter end of the 19th century, John Marsh, who was the oldest man in the village of Mansteth, could be prevailed upon to state what he recollected. His two sons supported him in his old age. He never felt the pinch of poverty, and he always had money in his pocket. But it was a settled principle with him that he would not pay for the pint of beer which he drank occasionally in the parlor of the stag. Sometimes Farmer Wyathwaite paid for the beer. Sometimes it was Mr. Spicer from the post office. Sometimes the landlord of the stag himself would finance the old man's evening dissipation. In return, John Marsh was prevailed upon to state what he recollected. This he would do with great hardiness and strict impartiality, recalling the intemperance of a former Winthwaite and the dishonesty of some ancestral spicer while he drank the beer of their direct descendants. He would tell you, with two tough old fingers crooked round the handle of the pewter that you had provided, how your grandfather was a poor thing, fit for nought but to break stains by Tarod's side. He was so disrespectful that it was believed that he spoke truth. He was particularly disrespectful when he spoke of that most devilish family, the Vancarests. And he never tired of recounting these stories that from generation to generation had grown up about them. It would be objected sometimes that the present Sir Edric, the last surviving member of the race, was a pleasant-spoken young man with none of the family wildness and hot temper. It was for no sin of his that Hal's planting was haunted, a thing which everyone in Mansteth and many beyond it most devoutly believed. John Marsh would hear no apology for him, nor for any of his ancestors. He recounted the prophecy that an old madwoman had made of the family before her strange death, and hoped fervently that he might live to see it fulfilled. The third baronet, as has already been told, had lived the latter part of his life after his second wife's death in peace and quietness. Of him John Marsh remembered nothing, of course, and could only recall the few fragments of information that had been handed down to him. He had been told that this Sir Edric, who had traveled a good deal, at one time kept wolves, intending to train them to serve as dogs. These wolves were not kept under proper restraint, and became a kind of terror to the neighborhood. Lady Van Carest, his second wife, had asked him frequently to destroy these beasts, but Sir Edric, although it was said that he loved his second wife even more than he hated the first, 
Avas obstinate when any of his whims were crossed, and put her off with promises. Then one day Lady Van Carest herself was attacked by the wolves. She was not bitten, but she was badly frightened. That filled Sir Edric with remorse, and when it was too late, he went out into the yard where the wolves were kept and shot them all. A few months afterwards, Lady Van Carest died in childbirth. It was a queer thing, John Marsh noted, that it was just at this time that Hal's planting began to get such a bad name. The fourth baronet was, John Marsh considered, the worse of the race. It was to him that the old madwoman had made her prophecy, an incident that Marsh himself had witnessed in his childhood and still vividly remembered. The baronet, in his old age, had been cast up by his vices on the shores of melancholy, heavy-eyed, gray-haired, bent, he seemed to pass through life as in a dream. Every day he would go out on horseback, always at a walking pace, as though he were following the funeral of his past self. One night he was riding up the village street, as this old woman came down it. Her name was Anne Ruthers. She had a kind of reputation in the village, and although all said that she was mad, Many of her utterances were remembered, and she was treated with respect. It was growing dark, and the village street was almost empty. But just at the lower end was the usual group of men by the door of the stag, dimly illuminated by the light that came through the quaint windows of the old inn. They glanced at Sir Edric as he rode slowly past them, taking no notice of their respectful salutes. At the upper end of the street, there were two persons. One was Anne Ruthers, a tall, gaunt old woman, her head wrapped in a shawl. The other was John Marsh. He was then a boy of eight, and he was feeling somewhat frightened. He had been on an expedition to a distant and fetid pond, and in the black mud and clay about its borders, he had discovered live newts. He had three of them in his pocket, and this was to some extent a joy to him. But his joy was dampened by his knowledge that he was coming home much too late and would probably be chastised in consequence. He was unable to walk fast or to run because Anne Ruthers was immediately in front of him, and he dared not pass her, especially at night. She walked on until she met Sir Edric, and then, standing still, she called him by name. He pulled in his horse and raised his heavy eyes to look at her. Then in loud, clear tones she spoke to him, and John Marsh heard and remembered every word that she said. It was her prophecy of the end of the Vancrests. Sir Edric never answered a word. When she had finished, he rode on while she remained standing there, her eyes fixed on the stars above her. John Marsh dared not pass the mad woman. He turned round and walked back, keeping close to Sir Edric's horse. Quite suddenly, without a word of warning, as if in a moment of ungovernable irritation, Sir Edric wheeled his horse round and struck the boy across the face with his switch. On the following morning, John Marsh, or rather his parents, received a handsome solatium in coin of the realm. 
sixty-five years afterwards, he had not forgiven that blow, and still spoke of the Van Crests as a most devilish family, still hoped and prayed that he might see the prophecy fulfilled. He would relate, too, the death of Anne Ruthers, which occurred either later on the night of her prophecy or early on the following day. She would often roam about the country all night, and on this particular night she left the main road to wander over the Van Crestlands, where trespassers, especially at night, were not welcomed. But no one saw her, and it seemed that she made her way to a part where no one was likely to see her, for none of the keepers would have entered Hal's planting by night. Her body was found there at noon on the following day, lying under the tall bracken, dead, but without any mark of violence upon it. It was considered that she had died in a fit. This naturally added to the ill repute of Hal's planting. The woman's death caused considerable sensation in the village. Sir Edric sent a message to the married sister with whom she had lived, saying that he wished to pay all the funeral expenses. This offer, as John Marsh recalled with satisfaction, was refused. Of the last two baronets he had but little to tell. The fifth baronet was credited with the family temper, but he conducted himself in a perfectly conventional way and did not seem in the least to belong to romance. He was a good man of business and devoted himself to making up as far as he could for the very extravagant expenditure of his predecessors. His son, the present Sir Edric, was a fine young fellow and popular in the village. Even John Marsh could find nothing to say against him. Other people in the village were interested in him. It was said that he had chosen a wife in London, a Miss Gurdon, and would shortly be back to see that Mansteth Hall was put in proper order for her before his marriage at the close of the season. Modernity kills ghostly romance. It was difficult to associate this modern and handsome Sir Edric, bright and spirited, a good sportsman and a good fellow, with the doom that had been foretold for the Vancrest family. He himself knew the tradition and laughed at it. He wore clothes made by a London tailor, looked healthy, smiled cheerfully, and in vain attempt to shame his own headkeeper, had himself spent a night alone in Hal's planting. This last was used by Mr. Spicer in argument. Who would ask John Marsh what he had made of it? John Marsh replied contemptuously that it was nout. It was not so that the Vancrest family was to end, but when the thing, whatever it was, that lived in Hal's planting left it and came up to the house, to Mansteth Hall itself, then one would see the end of the Vancrests. So Anne Ruthers had prophesied. Sometimes Mr. Spicer would ask the pertinent question, how did John Marsh know that there really was anything in Hal's planting? This he asked less because he disbelieved than because he wished to draw forth an account of John's personal experiences. These were given in great detail, but they did not amount to very much. One night John Marsh had been taken by business. Sir Edric Keepers would have called the business by hard names into the neighborhood of Hal's planting. 
He had there been suddenly startled by a cry, and had run away as though he were running for his life. That was all he could tell about the cry. It was the kind of cry to make a man lose his head and run. And then it always happened that John Marsh was urged by his companions to enter Hell's Planting himself and discover what was there. John pursed his thin lips together and hinted that that also might be done one of these days. Whereupon Mr. Spicer looked across his pipe to Farmer Winthwaite and smiled significantly. Shortly before Sir Edric's return from London, the attention of Mansteth was once more directed to Hell's planting, but not by any supernatural occurrence. Quite suddenly, on a calm day, two trees there fell with a crash. There were caves in the center of the plantation, and it seemed as if the roof of some big chamber in these caves had given way. They talked it over one night in the parlor of the stag. There was water in these caves. Farmer Winthwaite knew it. And he expected a further subsidence. If the whole thing collapsed, what then? Aye, said John Marsh. He rose from his chair and pointed in the direction of the hall with his thumb. What then? He walked across to the fire, looked at it meditatively for a moment, and then spat in it. A truly wonderful old man said Farmer Winthwaite, as he watched him. Three. In the smoking-room at Mansteth Hall sat Sir Edric with his friend and intended brother-in-law, Dr. Andrew Gerardin. Both men were on the verge of middle age. There was hardly a year's difference between them, yet Gerardin looked much the older man, that was perhaps because he wore a short black beard, while Sir Edric was clean-shaven. Guerdon was thought to be an enviable man. His father had made a fortune in the firm of Guerdon, Guerdon, and Bird. The old style was still retained at the bank, although there was no longer a Guerdon in the firm. Andrew Guerdon had a handsome allowance from his father, and had also inherited money through his mother. He had taken the degree of Doctor of Medicine, he did not practice, but he was still interested in science, especially in out-of-the-way science. He was unmarried, gifted with perpetually good health, interested in life, popular. His friendship with Sir Edric dated from their college days. It had for some years been almost certain that Sir Edric would marry his friend's sister, Ray Guerdon, although the actual betrothal had only been announced that season. On a bureau in one corner of the room were spread a couple of plans and various slips of paper. Sir Edric was wrinkling his brows over them, dropping cigar ash over them, and finally getting angry over them. He pushed back his chair irritably and turned towards Guerdon. "'Look here, old man,' he said. "'I desire to curse the original architect of this house, to curse him in his down-sitting and his uprising.' Seeing that the original architect has gone to where beyond these voices there is peace, he won't be offended. Neither shall I. But why worry yourself? You've been rooted in that blessed bureau all day. And now, after dinner, when every self-respecting man chucks business, you return to it again, even as a sow returns to her wallowing in the mire. Now, my good Andrew, do be reasonable. How on earth can I bring Ray to such a place as this? 
and it's built with such ingrained malice and vexatiousness that one can't live in it as it is and can't alter it without having the whole shanty tumbled down about one's ears. Look at this plan now. That thing's what they are pleased to call a morning room. If the window had been there, there would have been an interrupted view of open country. So what does this forsaken fool of an architect do? He sticks it there, where you see it on the plan, looking straight on to a blank wall with a stable yard on the other side of it. But that's a trifle. Look here again. I won't look any more. This place is all right. It was good enough for your father and mother, and several generations before them, until you arose to improve the world. It was good enough for you until you started to get married. It's a picturesque place, and if you begin to alter it, you'll spoil it. Guardon looked round the room critically. Upon my word, he said, I don't know of any house where I like the smoking room as well as I like this. It's not too big, and yet it's fairly lofty. It's got those comfortable-looking oak-paneled walls. That's the right kind of fireplace, too, and these corner cupboards are handy. Of course, this won't remain the smoking room. It has the morning sun, and Ray likes that, so I shall make it into her boudoir. It is a nice room, as you say. That's it, Ted, my boy, said Gordon bitterly. Take a room which is designed by nature and art to be a smoking room and turn it into a boudoir. Turn it into the very deuce of a boudoir with the morning sun laid on forever and ever. Waste the 12th of August by getting married on it. Spend the winter in foreign parts and write letters that you can breakfast out of doors just as if you'd created the mildness of the climate yourself. Come back in the spring and spend the London season in the country in order to avoid seeing anybody who wants to see you. That's the way to do it. That's the way to get yourself generally loved and admired. That's chiefly imagination, said Sir Edric. I'm blessed if I can see why I should not make this house fit for Ray to live in. It's a queer thing. Ray was a good girl. And you weren't a bad sort yourself. You prepare to go into partnership. And you both straight away turn into despicable lunatics. I'll have a word or two with Ray, but I'm serious about this house. Don't go tinkering it. It's got a character of its own, and you'd better leave it. Turn half Tottenham Court Road and the culture thereof, heaven help it, into your townhouse if you like, but leave this alone. Haven't got a townhouse yet. Anyway, I'm not going to be unsuitable. I'm not going to feel myself at the mercy of a big firm. I shall supervise the whole thing myself. I shall drive over to Challensee tomorrow afternoon and see if I can't find some intelligent and fairly conscientious workmen. That's all right. You supervise them, and I'll supervise you. You'll be much too new if I don't look after you. You've got an old legend, I believe, that the family's coming to a bad end. You must be consistent with it. As you are bad, be beautiful. By the way, what do you yourself think of the legend? It's nothing, said Sir Edric, speaking, however, rather seriously. They say that Hal's planting is haunted by something that will not die. Certainly an old woman, who for some godless reason of her own made her way there by night, was found there dead on the following morning, 
but her death could be and was accounted for by natural causes. Certainly, too, I haven't a man in my employ who'll go there by night now. Why not? How should I know? I fancy that a few of the villagers sit boozing at the stag in the evening and like to scare themselves by swapping lies about Hell's planting. I've done my best to stop it. I once, as you know, took a rug, a revolver, and a flask of whiskey and spent the night there myself, but even that didn't convince them. Yes, you told me. By the way, did you hear or see anything? Sir Edric hesitated before he answered. Finally, he said, Look here, old man, I wouldn't tell this to anyone but yourself. I did think that I heard something. About the middle of the night, I was awakened by a cry. I can only say that I was the kind of cry that frightened me. I sat up, and at that moment I heard some great heavy thing go swishing through the bracken behind me at a great rate. Then all was still. I looked about, but I could find nothing. At last I argued, as I would argue now, that a man who is just awake is only half awake, and that his powers of observation by hearing or any other sense are not to be trusted. I even persuaded myself to go to sleep again, and there was no more disturbance. However, there's a real danger there now. In the heart of the plantation there are some eaves and a subterranean spring. Lately there has been some slight subsidence there, and the same sort of thing will happen again in all probability. I wired today to an expert to come and look at the place. He has replied that he will come on Monday. The legend says that when the thing that lives in Hal's planting comes up to the hall, the van crests will be ended. If I cut down the trees and then break up the place with a charge of dynamite, I shouldn't wonder if I spoiled that legend. Gurdon smiled. I'm inclined to agree with you all through. It's absurd to trust the immediate impressions of a man just awakened. What you heard was probably a stray cow. No cow, said Sir Edric impartially. There's a low wall around the place. Not much of a wall, but too much for a cow. Well, something else. Some equally obvious explanation. In dealing with such questions, never forget that you're in the 19th century. By the way, your man's coming on Monday. That reminds me, today's Friday, and as an indisputable consequence, tomorrow's Saturday, therefore... If you want to find your intelligent workman, it will be of no use to go in the afternoon. True, said Sir Edric. I'll go in the morning. He walked to a tray on a side table and poured a little whiskey into a tumbler. They don't seem to have brought any seltzer water, he remarked in a grumbling voice. He rang the bell impatiently. Now why don't you use those corner cupboards for that kind of thing? If you kept a supply there... It would be handy in case of accidents. They're full up already. He opened one of them and showed that it was filled with old account books and yellow documents tied up in bundles. The servant entered. Oh, I say, there isn't any seltzer. Bring it, please. He turned again to Gordon. You might do me a favor when I'm away tomorrow. If there's nothing else that you want to do, I wish you'd look through all these papers for me. They're all old. Possibly some of them ought to go to my solicitor, and I know that a lot of them ought to be destroyed. Some few may be of family interest. It's not the kind of thing that I could ask a stranger or a servant to do for me. 
and I've so much on hand just now before my marriage. But of course, my dear fellow, I'll do it with pleasure. I'm ashamed to give you all this bother. However, you said that you were coming here to help me, and I take you at your word. By the way, I think you'd better not say anything to Ray about the Hell's Planting story. I may be some of the things that you take me for, but really, I am not a common ass. Of course I shouldn't tell her. I'll tell her myself, and I'd sooner do it when I've got the whole thing cleared up. Well, I'm really obliged to you. I needn't remind you that I hope to receive as much again. I believe in compensation. Nature always gives it and always requires it. One finds it everywhere, in philology and onwards. I could mention omissions. There are few, and make a belief in a hereafter to supply them, logical. Lunatics, for instance? Their delusions are often their compensation. They argue correctly from false premises. A lunatic believing himself to be a millionaire has as much delight as money can give. How about deformities or monstrosities? The principle is there, although I don't pretend that the compensation is always adequate. A man who is deprived of one sense generally has another developed with unusual acuteness. As for monstrosities, of it all a human type, one sees none. The things exhibited in fairs are, almost without exception, frauds. They occur rarely, and one does not know enough about them. A really good textbook on the subject would be interesting. Still, such stories, as I have heard, would bear out my theory. Stories of their superhuman strength and cunning, and of the extraordinary prolongation of life that has been noted, or is said to have been noted in them. But it is hardly fair to test my principle by exceptional cases. Besides, anyone can prove anything except that anything was worth proving. That's a cheerful thing to say. I wouldn't like to swear that I could prove how the Hell's Planting legend started, but I fancy, do you know, that I could make a very good shot at it. Well? My great-grandfather kept wolves. I can't say why. Do you remember the portrait of him? Not the one when he was a boy. The other. It hangs on the staircase. There's now a group of wolves in one corner of the picture. I was looking carefully at the picture one day and thought that I detected some overpainting in that corner. Indeed, it was done so roughly that a child would have noticed it if the picture had been hung in a better light. I had the overpainting removed by a good man, and underneath there was that group of wolves depicted. Well, one of these wolves must have escaped, got into Hal's planting, and scared an old woman or two. That would start a story, and human mendacity would do the rest. Yes, said Guerdon meditatively. That doesn't sound improbable, but why did your great-grandfather have the wolves painted out? Four. Saturday morning was fine, but very hot and sultry. After breakfast, when Sir Edric had driven off to Challensea, Andrew Guerdon settled himself in a comfortable chair in the smoking room. The contents of the corner cupboard were piled up on a table by his side. He lit his pipe and began to go through the papers and put them in order. 
He had been at work about a quarter of an hour when the butler entered rather abruptly, looking pale and disturbed. "'In Sir Edric's absence, sir, it was thought that I had better come to you for advice. There's been an awful thing happened.' "'Well?' They've found a corpse in Hell's planting about half an hour ago. It's the body of an old man, John Marsh, who used to live in the village. He seems to have died in some kind of fit. They were bringing it here, but I had it taken down to the village where his cottage is. Then I sent to the police and to a doctor. There was a moment or two's silence before Gordon answered. This is a terrible thing. I don't know of anything else that you could do. Stop. If the police want to see the spot where the body was found, I think that Sir Edric would like them to have every facility. Quite so, sir. And no one else must be allowed there. No, sir. Thank you. The butler withdrew. Gordon arose from his chair and began to pace up and down the room. What an impressive thing a coincidence is, he thought to himself. Last night the whole of the Hell's Planting story seemed to me not worth consideration. But the second death there, it can be only coincidence. What else could it be? The question would not leave him. What else could it be? Had that dead man seen something there and died in sheer terror of it? Had Sir Edric really heard something when he spent the night there alone. He returned to his work, but he found that he got on with it but slowly. Every now and then his mind wandered back to the subject of Hell's planting. His doubts annoyed him. It was unscientific and unmodern of him to feel any perplexity, because a natural and rational explanation was possible. He was annoyed with himself for being perplexed. After luncheon, he strolled round the grounds and smoked a cigar. He noticed that a thick bank of dark slate-colored clouds was gathering in the west. The air was very still. In a remote corner of the garden, a big heap of weeds was burning. The smoke went up perfectly straight. On the top of the heap, light flames danced. They were like the ghosts of flames in the strange light. A few big drops of rain fell. The small shower did not last for five seconds. Gordon glanced at his watch. Sir Edric would be back in an hour, and he wanted to finish his work with the papers before Sir Edric's return, so he went back into the house once more. He picked up the first document that came to hand. As he did so, another smaller and written on parchment, which had been folded with it, dropped out. He began to read the parchment. It was written in faded ink, and the parchment itself was yellow and in many places stained. It was the confession of the third baronet. He could tell that by the date upon it. It told the story of that night when he and Dr. Dennison went together, carrying a burden through the long garden, out into the orchard that skirts the north side of the park, and then across a field to a small dark plantation. It told how he made a vow to God and did not keep it. These were the last words of the confession. Already upon me has the punishment fallen, and the devil's wolves do seem to hunt me in my sleep nightly. But I know that there is worse to come. The thing that I took to hell's planting is dead, 
Yet will it come back again to the hall, and then will the vancrests be at an end? This writing I have committed to chance, neither showing it nor hiding it, and leaving it to chance if any man shall read it. Underneath there was a line written in darker ink, and in quite different handwriting. It was dated fifteen years later, and the initials R.D. were appended to it. It is not dead. I do not think that it will ever die. When Andrew Guerdon had finished reading this document, he looked slowly round the room. The subject got on his nerves, and he was almost expecting to see something. Then he did his best to pull himself together. The first question he put to himself was this. Has Ted ever seen this? Obviously he had not. If he had, he could not have taken the tradition of Hal's planting so lightly, nor have spoken of it so freely. Besides, he would either have mentioned the document to Guerdon, or he would have kept it carefully concealed. He would not have allowed him to come across it casually in that way. Ted must never see it, thought Guerdon to himself. He then remembered the pile of weeds he had seen burning in the garden. He put the parchment in his pocket and hurried out. There was no one about. He spread the parchment on top of the pile and waited until it was entirely consumed. Then he went back to the smoking room. He felt easier now. Yes, thought Guerdon. If Ted first of all heard of the finding of that body, and then had read that document, I believe he would have gone mad. Things that come near us affect us deeply. Guerdon himself was much moved. He clung steadily to reason. He felt himself able to give a natural explanation, although yet he was nervous. The net of coincidence had closed in around him. The mention of Sir Edric's confession of the prophecy, which had subsequently become traditional in the village, alarmed him. And what did that last line mean? He supposed that R.D. must be the initials of Dr. Dennison. What did he mean by saying that the thing was not dead? Did he mean that it had not really been killed? That it had been gifted with some preternatural strength and vitality and had survived? though Sir Edric did not know it. He recalled what he had said about the prolongation of the lives of such things. If it still survived, why had it never been seen? Had it joined to the wild hardiness of the beast a cunning that was human, or more than human? How could it have lived? There was water in the caves, he reflected, and food could have been secured, a wild beast's food. Or did Dr. Dennison mean that Though the thing itself was dead, its wraith survived and haunted the place. He wondered how the doctor had found Sir Edric's confession, and why he had written that hue at the end of it. As he sat thinking, a low rumble of thunder in the distance startled him. He felt a touch of panic, a sudden impulse to leave Manstedt at once, and, if possible, to take Ted with him. Ray could never live there. He went over the whole thing in his mind, again and again, at one time calm and argumentative about it, and at another shaken by blind horror. Sir Edric, on his return from Challency a few minutes afterwards, came straight to the smoking room where Guerdon was. He looked tired and depressed. He began to speak at once. 
You needn't tell me about it. About John Marsh. I heard about it in the village. Did you? It's a painful occurrence, although, of course... Stop. Don't go into it. Anything can be explained. I know that. I went through those papers and account books while you were away. Most of them may just as well be destroyed. But there are a few. I put them aside there, which might be kept. There was nothing of any interest. Thanks. I'm much obliged to you. Oh, and look here. I've got an idea. I've been examining the plans of the house, and I'm coming round to your opinion. There are some alterations which should be made, and yet I'm afraid that they make the place look patched and renovated. It wouldn't be a bad thing to know what Ray thought about it. That's impossible. The workmen come on Monday, and we can't consult her before then. Besides, I have a general notion what she would like. We could catch the night express to town at Challency, and Sir Edric rose from his seat angrily and hit the table. Good God, I don't sit there hunting up excuses to cover my cowardice and making it easy for me to bolt. What do you suppose the villagers would say, and what would my own servants say if I ran away tonight? I am a coward, I know it. I'm horribly afraid, but I'm not going to act like a coward if I can help it. Now, my dear chap, don't excite yourself. If you are going to care at all, to care as much as the conventional dam for what people say, you'll have no peace in life. And I don't believe you're afraid. What are you afraid of? Sir Edric paced once or twice up and down the room and then sat down again before replying. Look here, Andrew. I'll make a clean breast of it. I've always laughed at the tradition. I forced myself, as it seemed at least, to disprove it by spending a night in Hell's Planting. I took the pains even to make a theory which would account for its origin. All the time I had a sneaking, stifled belief in it. With the help of my reason, I crushed that. But now my reason has thrown up the job, and I'm afraid. I'm afraid of the undying thing that is in Hell's Planting. I heard it that night. John Marsh saw it last night. They took me to see the body, and the face was awful. And I believe that one day it will come from Hal's planting. Yes, interrupted Gordon, I know. And at present I believe as much. Last night we laughed at the whole thing, and we shall live to laugh at it again and be ashamed of ourselves for a couple of superstitious old women. I fancy that beliefs are affected by weather. There's thunder in the air. No, said Sir Edric. My belief has come to stay. And what are you going to do? I'm going to test it on Monday. I can begin to get to work, and then I'll blow up Hell's planting with dynamite. After that, we shan't need to believe. We shall know. And now let's dismiss the subject. Come down into the billiard room and have a game. Until Monday, I won't think of the thing again. Long before dinner, Sir Edric's depression seemed to have completely vanished. At dinner, he was boisterous and amused. Afterwards, he told stories and was interesting. It was late at night. The terrific storm that was raging outside had awoke Werden from sleep. Hopeless of getting to sleep again, he had arisen and dressed, and now sat at the window seat, 
watching the storm. He had never seen anything like it before, and every now and then the sky seemed to be torn across, as if by hands of white fire. Suddenly he heard a tap at his door and looked around. Sir Edric had already entered. He also addressed. He spoke in a curious, subdued voice. I thought you wouldn't be able to sleep through this. Do you remember that I shut and fastened the dining room window? Yes, I remember it. Well, come in here. Sir Edric led the way to his room, which was immediately over the dining room. By leaning out of window, they could see that the dining room window was open wide. Burglar, said Guerdon meditatively. No, Sir Edric answered, still speaking in a hushed voice. It is the undying thing. It has come for me. He snatched up the candle and made toward the staircase. Guerdon cut up the loaded revolver, which always lay on the table beside Sir Edric's bed, and followed him. Both men ran down the staircase as though there were not another moment to lose. Sir Edric rushed at the dining room door, opened it a little, and looked in. Then he turned to Guerdon, who was just behind him. "'Go back to your room,' he said authoritatively. "'I won't,' said Guerdon. "'Why?' What is it? Suddenly, the corners of Sir Edric's mouth shot outwards into the hideous grin of terror. It's there! It's there! he gasped. Then I come in with you. Go back! With a sudden movement, Sir Edric thrust Guerdon away from the door, and then, quick as light, darted in and locked the door behind him. Guerdon bent down and listened. He heard Sir Edric say in a firm voice, "'Who are you? What are you?' Then followed a heavy, snorting breathing, a low, vibrating growl, an awful cry, a scuffle. Then Gordon flung himself at the door. He kicked at the lock, but it would not give way. At last he fired his revolver at it. Then he managed to force his way into the room. It was perfectly empty. Overhead, he could hear footsteps. The noise had awakened the servants. They were standing, tremulous, on the upper landing. Through the open window, access to the garden was easy. Guerdon did not wait to get help, and in all probability none of the servants could have been persuaded to come with him. He climbed out alone and as if by some blind impulse, started to run as hard as he could in the direction of Hal's planting. He knew that Sir Edric would be found there. But when he got within a hundred yards of the plantation, he stopped. There had been a great flash of lightning, and he saw that it had struck one of the trees. Flames darted about the plantation as the dry bracken caught. Suddenly, in the light of another flash, he saw the whole of the trees fling their heads upwards. Then came a deafening crash, and the ground slipped under him, and he was flung forward on his face. The plantation had collapsed, fallen through into the caves beneath it. Guerdon slowly regained his feet. He was surprised to find that he was unhurt. He walked on a few steps and then fell again. This time he had fainted away. Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Lisa. Sounded kind of glum there, Paul. 
I'm tired, that's all. All right. Well, maybe you stayed up too late, sitting on a rug with a flask of, flask of whiskey and a revolver in your pocket. Is that what happened? Wor- worrying about the sins of my past coming back to bite me in the bite me in the butt. Yes. Yes. Well, the sins of your ancestors. Hmm. Because this is a this is the undying thing by Barry Payne we're talking about, and boy, uh, I did not know when I suggested we read this that it would be so appropriate following our last group conversation on the topic of werewolves. <laughs> yes. So I think it's pretty damn cool that this is a werewolf story. It's a werewolf story, right? You didn't know that when you suggested no, it? No, I didn't. I had no I, idea. I, I thought you were being an evil genius about it. Well, <laughs> I'll take the genius part. But, uh, uh, there is a method to my madness, uh, but it isn't, uh, it isn't, it just, I think this is fortuitous. Hmm. And uh, when I realized that I think this is a werewolf story, it's kind of a werewolf story anyways. Kind um, of. I thought that was even cooler. And, I was not super hot on this story when I started reading it. I was like, I seem to be drifting off from the story. And then went back and I listened to it again. Well, it's still drifting away. But then, as I started to get the feel of how Barry Payne writes in this story, uh, I began to really dig this story. And I thought, this is actually an amazing story. <laughs> um What was your uh, reaction? I found more, because I, I, I read it and uh-huh. I listened to it. A couple of times because it was so short I could yeah and the more I listened to it and like yeah I got into the rhythm of it and, and what was going on then I was like I started having like a lot of questions mm-hmm. I mean I had a lot of questions to start with but now I'm I'm filled with questions no kidding <laughs> right this story is ah uh, I love that it's it doesn't answer I mean how about this the monster never shows up on screen Never. Yeah, it's very old, yeah. very old, old school. I was thinking, okay, it's going to show up, it's going to show up. No, we're just going Never to... shows up. And like, I got yeah. to the end, and I remember editing the file and thinking, oh, uh, that ending doesn't sound like it's very definitive. <laughs> yeah, and checking, checking the audio against the, the text. I, I thought, oh, <laughs> shit, I've sent the files to the guys wrong, and yeah. this is... I, I was surprised, too. It's like, right? wait a minute, did this get cut off? Let me go check the... It feels like it's been cut yeah. off. And, of course, I think that that is the point. Uh, this story provokes questions way more than it uh, gives definite answers. But there's so many hints, um, and uh, it's so rich. I think it's mm-hmm. it's really terrific. Yeah. Uh, how did you uh, approach it, Paul? Were you, uh, like Mice and I, not yeah, into it, it at first? I, I, I listened to it the first time the other day, and it's like, ah. Eh. Okay, that didn't work so well. I'm not gonna have anything to say on Sunday. So. <laughs> and then, and then, after a couple sleepless nights and listening to it again yesterday, like, okay, now I'm now I'm starting to see, now I'm starting to unpack it a little more. And I listened to it just before this podcast, and like, okay, now now I'm starting to see the the, the rhythm and the structure what he's doing the the. The sense of misdirection, the fact that we don't see the monster and everything, things are implied. And as you said, Mice, mm-hmm. things are things are asked but not answered. It's like, okay, so okay, so that's where he's going with this. This is a more this is a more nuanced story than I had picked up at first. There's lots of elliptical 
digressions in the story where they mm-hmm. talk about various things and have various conversations, but always looping back. I mean, if you try to diagram this story, it'd be a really I, be a mess of loops. I yeah. really yeah. like the way um, I was thinking, like, this would make an amazing movie. Like, I would film it in black and white. <laughs> Um, you know, I would get Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing and, um, I, I, I would, I would I would film the main story in black and white and then do like sepia for the digressions and the, and looking into the backstory just to have the viewer have a visual tell us where we are in the actual timeline of things. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I don't think either of you were on a show I did uh, back in 2014 um, on a mm, slightly famous novel called The Hound of the Baskervilles. Have I think guys, that was before my era here. On have you guys read this book or heard, heard of it? it? Yeah, a long time ago. <laughs> I, I, 2014, I, I don't know if I was on that or not. I, I know I did um, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle with you. Sherlock Holmes specifically. Um, I think that was. Um, I think it was probably after that. Yes, that was a different one. Um, uh, in fact, I know you weren't on this one because I'm looking at the the show ah. notes for it. Um, that was with Julie and uh, Mr. Jim Moon and uh, Tamahome. Maybe I listened to it then. Maybe. It seems sort of familiar. Uh, you should. You everyone knows the Hound of the Baskervilles, though, right? I mean, if you've oh, yeah. been orbiting the Earth, uh, or not orbiting the Earth, orbiting the star we call the Sun for. More than ten years, I, I think pretty much everybody. Maybe maybe there's a few kids who haven't heard it, heard about it yet. But um, which is the more famous story, this one, or the undi- uh, the Hound of the Baskervilles, or the Undying Thing? Hound of the Baskervilles, unquestionably. Yeah, right. Guess who yeah. came first? Uh, this one. Nope. They came out oh. exactly at the same time. The same oh, month, in fact. Is same that month? not weird? Yeah. Because think about, I mean, obviously the way the stories unfold are completely different. One is a novel. The other one is a long, short story. Uh, one um, has no detective. One has, <laughs> uh, you know. Uh, but One has Mr. Marsh. Uh, exactly. Um, but... In fact, there's so many similarities that, uh, not in the writing, but in the in the details of the of like the plot points, that it's really interesting. Um, I'm pretty familiar with it because I did a show on it, um, and I I've you know I watched several movies on it, but I want to just go through some of the points in in uh, contact that these two have. Um, uh, so uh, Sir John Baskerville. Right, mm-hmm. was an mm-hmm. I think it's John, uh, John. Oh, Sir Henry Baskerville was a baronet. Our uh-huh. main character in this story is a baronet. Now, what's the difference between a baron and a baronet? Well, baronets get the title sir. Right, and it's inherited, just like a, a lordly title, but they don't get knighted. That's why in the Hound of the Baskervilles, the new Baskerville is a Canadian, and he gets the title as soon as he steps off the boat, right? He's just called Sir. Um, And he steps into a situation where um, he doesn't know what's going on. There's this old house. It's got servants, including a butler in it. Um, 
there's uh, rumors about uh, ancestral uh, who is a, who's kind of a baddie. Um, there's uh, some murders happening in the uh, in the um, uh, community. Uh, there's a friend who comes to the to the house and is staying over and finds out some of the truth about what's going on. There is um, a wolf or a hound, <laughs> either mm-hmm. a, can- a canine-like creature um, that haunts the family. And that is just a few of the, th- the, the points of contact. There's also even a rumor. They even have the go-to-the-bar, a tavern, uh, rumor mongers um, scene in both. It's astounding. That's so cool. It's so weird that they're they're. It's not like Payne is copying Doyle or Doyle's copying Payne. They're both doing the same thing in a completely different kind of writing way, but with the same kind of the seeds of evil being planted long ago and coming to to uh, reap later. Now, uh, I'm going to quote unquote. This is for a word for Paul. Spoil the Hounds of the Baskervilles for you. <laughs> okay. Just so you know, this 1901 story, it's... Uh, it's uh, Spoilers! Here it comes. Okay. So the bad guy in the Hounds, Hound of the Baskervilles is not the dog. The dog is a, a trained creature, just like um, we get trained creatures in the beginning of this story, um, who uh, is working for an heir to well he is the the dog is trained by an heir to the Baskerville estate who was um, cast off because of a um, uh, evil dalliance basically one of the old Baskervilles was a baddie and he had sex with somebody he shouldn't have um, and didn't claim the uh, son as his own. So it was a bastard son. And the new Baskerville that's coming from Canada is replacing him, but his plan is to become the heir eventually to the estate. And that's why he's he's trying to set up the murder of, um, of the new Baskerville son as a... or Baskerville heir as a... Um, uh, you know, he—it's basically enacting the plot of the Undying Thing, but with with no supernatural elements. So the seeds of the destruction of the family come from uh, past ancestral problems. This is very Lovecraftian, mm. <clears throat> and yet it doesn't feel super Lovecraftian while you're reading it. It's the way it's set up. Isn't proto- that interesting? Proto Lovecraftian because. Lovecraft had apparently liked the story, as I seem to recall, was mm-hmm. one of the reasons why you had picked it. Yes. Um, the 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 other uh, major work I'm thinking of, I mean, much many more years later, is the movie Brotherhood of the Wolf, where you have mm-hmm. a trained beast being used by aristocracy for their own political, their own political and personal ends, and you have someone poking into that and getting, I mean, in a more heroic sense, because you know it's Hollywood, so. Well, that was but, uh, that was uh, Edric Vanderquest's uh, the first Sir Edric Vanderquest's evil plan, right? 
was that he was going to he was going to take these wolves and train them uh, for his use. Right. Yeah. Basically for malevolent purposes. I wonder if Barry Payne knew the story of uh, the the Beast of Javon and decided to. I would uh, assume he was. And and, and same thing for Doyle. I I wonder if that's that's, that's the story. Yeah. The story that both got inspired. Yeah, me too. That's what I wanted to know. I would assume they were aware of it. I have that Lovecraft, the Lovecraft quote, but it's not um, it's not a ringing endorsement. So he wrote a giant essay called Supernatural Horror in Literature, and he did revise it at one point, but he uh, didn't put it in his second revision. There's, uh, I think, reason to believe that he would have put it in a a third revision had, um, had he lived longer or the essay been revised a third time. But um, that evidence mostly comes from me reading it and saying, holy crap, this is a really good story. In a, in a lot of ways, this is a really good story. So here's the quote. Um, Ugh, U-G-H, exclamation point. I really half believe I ought to mention this in my article in referring to the undying thing. Um, that's the entirety of his endorsement. Um, <laughs> now, why wouldn't he include it? Well... I guess the writing's not amazing. Is that the reason? It's good. It's competent. Mm-hmm. But I think the problem we had getting into it is part of the part of the reason that he would leave it out. But uh, I think it's 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 set up so well. There's a few things here and there where I would say mm, this needs another polish to make it an amazing piece. But um, wow, I really dig this story. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so it's like maybe we should uh, read a little bit for the readers. Um, yep, but you need to be closer to your mic. I need to be closer to my mic. Sorry. Yep. Um, let's see. So I think maybe we should read a little bit from the for the for the readers. What shall we? Ah. Uh, 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 one way to start is with uh, the end. <laughs> well, let's 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 start. Yeah, let's start with the end. Okay. So, it was it was late at night. The terrific storm that was raging outside had woke Guerdon from sleep, hopeless of getting to sleep again. He had risen and dressed, and now sat in the window seat, facing this, watching the storm. He had never seen anything like it before, and every now and then the sky seemed to be torn across as if by hands of white fire. Yeah, I love that, don't you? Mm-hmm. Suddenly, he heard a tap at his door and looked around. Sir Edric had, had already entered and had dressed. He spoke in a curious, subdued voice. I thought you wouldn't be able to sleep through this. Do you remember that I shut and fastened the dining room window? Yes, I remember it. Well, come in here. Sir Edric led the way to his room, which was immediately over the dining room. By leaning out of the window, they could see the dining room window was open wide. Burglar, said Gordon meditatively. No, Sir Edric answered, still speaking in a hushed voice. It is the undying thing. It has come from me. <laughs> let's let's pause there for a minute. Why does he think that? Um, plus, without being be out there in a storm at this hour of night. It's true. I mean, from a logic standpoint, but, who the heck else is? Uh, but I want to point out some stuff. So one of the things that happens right before this is is uh, our co- our companion buddy, what's it, Guerdon, right? Yeah. He's the Watson in this story. Um, he's doing the detective work, right? He finds the papers 
um, he reads the confession, the one that we we heard at the beginning of the mm-hmm. story, and then burns it. He believes that the the undying thing is real. At least mostly believes it, right? Or at least partly believes it. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't yeah. tell that to his friend, the uh, Baron, or the Baronet, Sir he, Edric. I, I think he kind... I don't know that he totally believes it. Because yeah, he's, he doesn't he's, like tell him... He be- believes it enough to get rid of the letter. Yeah. Right. But he doesn't want to influence uh, his friend. Into, but his into friend doesn't believe it. For it. Because right. he's afraid if he says something, he's gonna he's gonna essentially kill his friend Edric. Ah, yeah, he's, he's gonna, gonna drive him mad. Edge. In fact, he's gonna make him crazy. Yeah. Yes. And so, why does he? His his buddy has just come back <laughs> from from uh, cons- consulting builders on you know revising the family estate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, by so the he way, that's a plot point the- in in the uh, original uh, or the Hound of the Baskervilles as well. Um, I forgot. The new Baskerville is going to install electric lighting uh, yeah. instead of all the gas lighting, and he's going to modernize it, and he's going to become, you know, very active in the community and like that. Sorry. Wow. So at this point, I was going, why does he think that? And then I want, uh, why don't you continue, Paul? Because it, I think we get some evidence as to why he thinks that in the next part. Sure. He snatched up the candle and made towards the staircase. Guerdon caught the, up the loaded revolver, which always lay on the table beside Edric's bed, and followed him. Both men ran down the staircase as though there was not another moment to lose. So Edric rushed at the dining room door, opened it a little, and looked in. Then he turned to Guerdon, who was just behind him. Go back to your room, he said authoritatively. Why does he say, say that? You, you know what? This must have something to do with the night he spent by himself. I think you're right. In, yeah. And... Yeah. I think you're right. At this point, I was like, there's somebody in the room, right? There's somebody in the dining room. Yeah. He's, see- he's seen him, and Gordon hasn't yet. And then. Mm-hmm. Or heard something that Gordon hasn't heard. Yeah. And then the next line, Paul? I, I won't, said Gordon. Why? What is it? Suddenly, corners of Sir Edric's mouth shot outward into the hideous grin of terror. It's there! It's there! He gasped. He's seen it, right? Then Mm -hmm. I come in with you. Go back! With a sudden move, Sir Edric thrust Gordon away from the door, and then quick as light darted in and locked the door behind him. Gordon bent down to listen, and he heard Sir Edric say in a firm voice, Who are you? Mm -hmm. What are you? He's talking. He's talking to the undying thing, right? (laughs) It. Then followed a heavy snorting breathing, a low vibrating growl, an awful cry. A scuffle. Okay, so let's just figure this out. Followed a heavy snorting breathing. Who's doing that noise? Well, clearly the undying thing. Well, that's the obvious implication, right? A low vibrating growl, an yeah. awful cry, a scuffle. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's continue. Well, well, hold on for a second. But it's like, who are you? What are you? I mean, going back to the whole idea that this is a werewolf, you wouldn't say, who are you to a dog? You, no, he, you wouldn't say, who no, are you, you to a dog? No. So so it's clearly a, a bipedal creature. Yeah. I would say that, so, that, yeah. That he can't uh-huh. see at first. Yeah, that, uh, 
it has to be uh, something vaguely humanoid. Yeah, and uh, right. I just want to point out that um, at the beginning of the story, when we see the baby, we don't actually see it. But we don't one, see it. One of the things that, uh, and I want to point out also that somebody in one of the, I tried to find anybody's criticism of this and found very little. There was a few things here and there. People were saying it was uh, a good story and some people didn't like it. Um, and I think probably for the reasons that we had trouble with it at first as well. But um, the only thing I've seen read about the baby is that they said uh, Sir Edric wanted another boy, which is true. Um, yeah. He says he wants another boy, but it never actually says. He asks him, is it a boy? Was it a boy? Is it a boy? And the doctor doesn't answer that question. He he instead says, there's Come with something me. I have to tell you. Yeah. yeah. And then when they talk about how to get rid of the baby, as in to kill it, mm-hmm. um, he says about uh, we. It's just a matter of covering the mouth and plugging the. Nose. Yeah, he did say mouth and nose. That, yeah, so that it was doesn't have a snout, right? So yeah, if, if it, I think if you said snout, that would be more clear. So it's obviously somewhat man-shaped in that it has a, no- a nose and a mouth, mm-hmm. right? Or human-shaped, yeah. I should say. Thank you. Keep, keep going, Paul. Okay. Then Guerdon flung himself out the door. He kicked at the lock, but it would not give way. At last, he fired his revolver at it. Bang! Then he <laughs> managed to force his way up into the room. It was perfectly empty. Overhead, he could hear footsteps. The noise had awakened the servants. They were standing, tremulous, on the upper landing. So where, where is where is um, Sir Edric? That's a good question. He's, he went through the window, right? That's what we have yeah. to assume. Because the window was open. How did it get in? The window was locked. This is fascinating. Keep going. Through, through the open window, access to the garden was easy. Gwerton did not wait to get help, and in all probability, none of the servants could have been persuaded to come with him. He climbed out alone as if by some blind impulse, started to run as hard as he could in the direction of Hal's planting. He knew that Sir Edric would be found there. But when he got within How did he hard know that? It's well, n- it, 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 there's no reason for him to think that other than we all think that, right? Yeah. All right. Now no. the final paragraph and the part now where the fi- we go like, what? That's the end of the story? <laughs> yep. But when he got within 100 yards of the plantation, he stopped. There had been a great flash of lightning and he saw that it struck one of the trees. Flames darted about the plantation as the dry bracken caught Suddenly, in the light of another flash, he saw the whole of the trees fling their heads upwards and then came a deafening crash, and this ground slipped under him, and he was flung forward on his face. The plantation had collapsed, fallen through into the caves beneath it. Reardon slowly regained his feet. He was surprised to find that he was unhurt. He walked on a few steps and then fell again. This time, he had fainted away. The mm-hmm. end of story. And I'm like, <laughs> well, no, no, no. What's the next chapter? What, 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 where's the epilogue? Okay. So what's going on? Can you guys explain it to me? Because I got a theory, but I wanna, I wanna hear what you got. Oh, um, well. Let's do it sentence I, by sentence. But when he when he got within a hundred yards of the plantations, he stopped. Why? Um, the, the 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 lightning and the and the tree strike. That's what I would assume, right? There had been a great flash of lightning, and he saw that it had struck one of the trees. This is very um, very gothic, right? Very, 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 very good. So I, and I think the way that uh, weather is used in this story is really good, really good. It's very, it's very 19th century. 
very, very effective. You know, it was a dark mm. and stormy night because <laughs> the emotions were in turmoil, right? Yeah. Flames, Flames. darted about the plantation as the dry br- br- bracken caught, as in caught fire, I would assume, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Next sentence. Suddenly, in the light of another flash, he saw the whole of the trees fling their heads upwards. Now, that is really interesting until you realize the next part. Then came a deafening crash, and the ground slipped under him, and he was flung forward on his face. So, what happened there? Some sort of some sort of sinking. So, yeah, seismic event. Yeah, mm-hmm. seismic uh, event, as in uh, a collapse of a tunnel system over... Uh, yeah, swallowing in. Right. Now, uh, what I'm so... I was, like, bizarred out by is that first half of the sentence. He saw the whole of the trees fling their heads upwards. Trees don't have heads, right? So they've got... They have know, crowns. Crowns yeah. and foliage and all that stuff. But I, I'm imagining how you would film this. And uh, that's what I'm seeing, right? Is I'm looking Tempest there... Tempest storms, yeah. And Tempest he's setting us up so we can see it, right? So he stops. Yeah. He looks... What does he see? He sees the lightning bolt, the trees catch fire, bracken catch fire, and then the trees fling their heads upwards. What I imagine is the leaves stay in the sky and the trunks collapse down into the earth. You see how that's actually the opposite of what's actually happening? It's not that they're flinging their heads upwards. It's they're staying still, but the ground is subsiding. And the trees with it. And the roots. Oh. I, I hmm. assume that that's what it means. But also, fling your head upwards is what he's doing, right? In a certain sense. Because yeah. he saw that lightning, he sees the fire, he flings his head upwards. That's, a, that's an amazing piece of writing, and I'm not if sure. You, but if you, imagine, if you imagine the ground caving in towards itself... The trees would look like they were flinging their their head backwards. Yeah, in, like, their leaves are like staying in the sky, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty amazing. And then suddenly in the light of another flash, he saw, and again, another lightning flash, he saw the whole of the trees fling their, their heads upwards. Then came a deafening crash, and the ground slipped under him. That word deafening crash, I think when I read it the first time, I was like, yeah, yeah, whatever, deafening crash. But what would the sound of a tunnel system you know over a whole plantation sound like deafening it would be really loud right you can sort of and i think that's part of the issue is listening to it as an audiobook these words are just streaming by us and it you have to be specially attuned to it it's like reading lovecraft you unless you're wayne june <laughs> you have to <laughs> take very special care to time every word Right, so that you can hear it. Then came a deafening crash, and the ground slipped out from under him, and he was flung forward on his face. Well, what flung him forward on his face? The crashing of the earth, maybe? Is he in the plantation? No, he's no, outside the drugs. plantation, right? Um, and this is actually very much the fall of the House of Usher. You guys know that story, right? Yeah. No. Uh, it's by Poe, and it's about a friend visiting a. Uh, an old college roommate who uh, is named Roderick Usher, and his his sister lives in his house with him. Um, and uh, the house is in disrepair. It's in a sort of 
somewhere in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. It's, it's, it's not the United States, it's not the UK, it's somewhere, but it's not clear where it is. And ultimately, the house at the end of the story collapses, um, probably because it's a metaphor, a symbol for the family itself. The destruction of the family and we get some sense that uh maybe the brother and sister are too close to each other with the sister oh. dying and dying and dying and the the madness of, of roderick usher becoming clearer and clearer and clearer and he's becoming you know it's a it's like um a mental sickness sort of and the house literally breaks in two a giant crack that was developing breaks in two and the whole thing collapses into uh, a tarn, which is a mountain a lake. lake, right? Yeah. Really mm-hmm. powerful imagery, a very powerful um, story uh, for some symbolic purposes. It's uh, that could be the inspiration for this as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so, deafening crash, and the ground slipped under him, and he was flung forward on his face. And now the final sentence. Oh, second to final sentence. Penultimate sentence. The plantation had collapsed, fallen through into the caves beneath it. That's the explanation, right? Mm-hmm. That makes sense. It, we had collapses earlier in the story. But I all I want to talk about those collapses earlier as well. Guerdon... Oh, I, took, I stole your reading, Paul. Guerdon slowly regained his feet. He was surprised to find that he was unhurt. Oh, uh, third to penultimate sentence. Sorry about that. Yeah. That was the penultimate sentence. He walked on a few steps and then fell again. This time, he had fainted away. Why? Why? <laughs> Why did he faint? Yeah. Did he um, see something? I I, yes. I, I, I I think just the realization that the entire plantation, including his friend, has now collapsed into the bowels of the earth would, uh, would uh, set me off uh, my kilter. Yeah, I, I would guess. Uh, I, did, did neither of you think he died also? I, I, I thought he I thought he might be dead as well, yeah. Yeah, like whatever it was, everybody died with the petrified look on their face. Yeah. He looks up. Yeah. And you know what? That's even oh, better. You're right, my son. I, I didn't even think about that. I I, I, I thought there's so, he's seen something, right? Yeah. And that's how it ha- that's why it had to end so abruptly because the story like what do you what do you do when you're There's you, no narrator, yeah. Yeah, the narrator's gone. The star, the viewpoint character is gone. Yeah. Yeah. That's nice. Yeah, you're right. And that huh. makes it all the stronger. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty sure there's this word here. Um, let's see if I can find it. Yep. Uh, let's see if I can find it here. Uh, yeah, the word smile comes up a few times. There's a story um, a, around this time. I doubt that uh, it's influenced by it. I th- but it was striking to me. The word smile comes up three times in the story. Um, where mm-hmm. it smiled, you know, it's an indication of things. But there's a story called The Dead Smile, um, <laughs> which is uh, about, it's kind of like, again, the fall of the House of Usher, where you've got this this family that's cursed, and the visitor comes, and he's, you know, a college roommate or whatever what it is, and the family's kind of fucked up <laughs> in the visit. And you realize um, that what's happening is a family curse. So they talk about going to visit the ancestors in the tomb under the house. And they find that the bodies are moved around. The corpses are moved around <laughs> inside. Right? And 
no matter what happens, um, after a certain amount of time, the skull has a giant smile on its face. Right? Yeah. Um, oh. And then at one point in the, near the end of the story, the uh, the family smile, you know, so um, there's members of my family who have that smile, you know, that it, it's it's a smile only they can pull off. <laughs> uh, just a little family culture. It's called the ukle face. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> Which is, it, it's kind of like um, Mad Magazine's, uh, you know, uh, what's the mascot for Mad Magazine? He's on the cover of every issue. Oh, Erwin Newman? Uh, like Alfred E. Newman, right. Alfred E. Newman. Alfred E. Newman's smile is very distinctive, so even when they dress him up as some other character. It's always him. So I can't do this face myself. My genes apparently went a different way. Uh, <laughs> but my father, my uncles, and I think even my grandfather could pull off this face. Um, <laughs> it's like, wow, that's a really unusual look. <laughs> um, it's a family curse, in fact. <laughs> right? Um, and and uh, I think that there, I thought, I felt like that smile was going to come again. And I want to give it to you right here. It's a little bit up above. um, Actually, Paul, you read it. Listen to this. Go back to your room, he said authoritatively. I won't, said Guerdon. Why is it? Suddenly, the corners of Sir Edric's mouth shot outward in a hideous grin of terror. It's there! It's there! Yeah, you yep, you're right. You're absolutely right. <laughs> okay. So I want to present an alternate reading of the ending. Oh, okay. Okay. He says it's there. Mm-hmm. But why did he call his friend? Right? He says, it was late at night. The terrific storm was raging outside. Gordon or awoke from sleep hopeless of getting to sleep again he had risen and dressed and now that he sat in the window seat and watched the storm never seen anything like it before and every now and then the sky seemed to be torn across as if by hands of white fire suddenly uh, sorry i love that it's great right suddenly he heard a tap at his door that's his buddy yeah looked around sir edric had already entered why he had dressed he spoke in a curious, subdued voice. He's, he's trying to remain calm, right? I mm-hmm. thought you wouldn't be able to sleep through this. Do you remember that I shut up and fastened the dining room window? Yes, I remember it. Well, how did the, how did the undying thing get in? Did it have a key? You open the front door and then go went and unlocked the dining room window? I don't think so. (laughs) Is it a ghost? Can it pass through walls? I don't think so. I think it has a body. We know it had a body at the beginning. Yes, I remember it. Well, come in here. Sir Edric led the way into his room, which was immediately over the dining room. By leading the window, they could see that the dining room window was open wide. So they actually look out the window of the house and look down, and they can see that the window below, on the story below, was open, right? Mm-hmm. Burglar, said Gordon meditatively. He's not a question. No, Sir Edric answered, still speaking in a hushed voice. It is the undying thing. 
it has come for me. Why does he think that? I think I know the reason. <laughs> he well, is the undying that, thing. You think so? I think it must be. Oh, it's I a have family a whole... curse. It's a werewolf curse. Uh, you think he himself is? He is. He is the inheritor of the curse, in a way that he couldn't escape. And possibly, he snatched up the candle and made towards the staircase. He, I, I think he doesn't know that he is, right? But what? Mm, but he has knowledge, uh-huh. right? Like I think he's about to transform, right? And that. So that's a possibility, what ha- what anyways. Happened, okay, what happened to um the to, baby? Um, no, the woman, the first woman who, the one that wa- wagged her finger at mm-hmm. uh, his at his grandfather, and uh, what did she see then? The the previous incarnation. I think that that must be the case, right? That that that's what the curse is all about. Is is it's <laughs> so at one point it says it's dead and not dead, right? Yes. Well, it, it, you know, what I thought was really interesting was we from from the beginning of the book, we thought that he was going to keep this thing alive because that's mm-hmm. what he pledged mm-hmm. to do. Yep. Mm-hmm. And we don't find out until like the page, be- like the page before where you are, that he killed it immediately. Like he yep. went right back on his uh, pledge and killed it. Yep. Um. So, so you want to hear my theory? Yeah, yeah. I'm not saying this is what it is, but I'm saying think about this. Look at it from this way. So, at the very beginning of the book, he's making, he's pledging to God. He says, um, he says, I never cared until I loved God for me, uh, God for myself, oh, nothing. I make no bargaining with thee. Whatsoever punishment thou givest me to bear, I will bear it. Whosoever, whatsoever thou givest me to do, I will do. Whether thou killest Eve... Or whether thou keepest her in life, I have never loved but for her. I will from this night be good. Okay, dot, 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 dot. Mm -hmm. Oh, thy loving kindness, most merciful God, be thou with Eve and make her happy after all these great pains and perils of childbirth. Send her peace of thy loving kindness of God. He is bargaining with God on Eve's behalf. Mm -hmm. He's telling, he's saying, God, do what you want. Preserve Eve. I will do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. He goes and back then, on his word. Might this? But then she dies. Thing, she dies. But that doesn't mean that her spirit. But if it's imagine that this undying thing might be some sort of spirit, mm-hmm. could be her, mm. like purgatory. Mm. Forever, uh, There's land. a story by mm-hmm. Poe called Morella. You know this story? No. Oh, no. it's good. Morella is a story um, in in which there's a Poe-like character. He marries a woman, and unlike uh, most relationships where uh, a man is slightly older than the woman he marries, um, she may be the same age or younger, but she is much wiser than he is. Well read in the German philosophers and such, and she dominates him in his guiding his education kind of like a, a mom and uh she she's very powerful force she's basically a witch or something right <laughs> okay and then what happens is um she gives birth to a child um a girl uh but dies um 
the husband raised the child but doesn't name her doesn't mm. give her a name for a long time and then when she as she grows which she grows frighteningly quickly she seems to have like alia in uh in dune right yeah um, she <laughs> she has knowledge of things she has not been educated about um and she eventually um she she's basically talking like her mom and then they go to the confirmation um and he has to finally name her i guess they're sort of isolated so he just calls her daughter or whatever um and he names her morella and then uh the daughter dies immediately he takes her corpse to the family tomb and is about to place it in there and then notices that his wife's body is missing. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. And uh, it's kind of a twisted relationship between, uh, you know, she's my daughter and my husband or whatever, you know. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Yeah. So um, that, yeah, that's, your theory fits with that for sure. The, I mean, I'm not saying that's it, but but it's oh, because so, it's just such an open story. Oh, so open, right? Wow. <laughs> yeah. I I did highlight a section here. Um, this is uh in our e text, uh page one thirty five. Um. In the paragraph starting on the following morning. Um. On the following morning, John Marsh, or rather his parents, received a hand, handsome solatium in coin of the realm. But 65 years afterwards, he had not forgiven the blow, that blow. Mm-hmm. This is the... Uh, John Marsh is one of the guys who dies in the... Um, he's, the he's the final guy to die. Well, second, third? Yeah, prior. Third, prior. <laughs> just the, the prior death in the uh, Howell's Plantation, which I'd like to know more about that... that name but um solidium is an interesting archaic word to use there yeah i want to hear i want to hear about that let me finish this sentence go ahead sorry uh but 65 years afterwards he had not forgiven that blow and still spoke of the vanker vanker as the most devilish family still hoped and prayed that he might see the prophecy fulfilled (laughs) Sorry, what were you mm-hmm. going to say about that word, Paul? Solatium. It's an interesting archaic word. I mean, it basically means compensation or for money. Or price, yeah, yeah exactly. a price to be paid. Yeah. Yeah, if you killed somebody in ancient ancient times, you would have and yeah, in primitive cultures they do exactly the same thing. So if there's a murder in a community, um, they, there's no jail, right? You have to right. give property. To replace the oh, person. Yeah, the Scandinavian word is wear guild. Yeah. Yeah, there. Wear guild. Wow, good word. Yeah. <laughs> well, wear meaning man and guild meaning money. Coin. Gold. Yep. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's nice. Wear guild. That should have been used here even better. That. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I think the author missed. That's missed. that Polish. He went. He went for the Latin word. He should have gone for the Anglo-Saxon. <laughs> or maybe it would have been too obvious. I don't know. Uh, Vanker, uh, Vankeress's most devilish family still hoped that he prayed that he might see the f- prophecy f- fulfilled. He would relate to the death of Anne Ruthers. Yeah, her. Which occurred either later on the night of the prophecy or early on the following day. 
mm-hmm. the night of her prophecy or earlier on, uh, on the following day. She would, so that's, at, you know, overnight, midnight, right? She would often roam about the country all night. <laughs> Why? She like well, Paul getting poor sleep at night because it's so hot. <laughs> <laughs> she, was she the third person that knew about the birth of of? Because uh, there were three that knew, right? So, right. There's the. I think she must be. Right. Because how else? She's the, unless she, she's, unless she read the note that was there for anybody to read, but yeah, she. I no, she she's got to be the nurse, right? Yeah. She would often roam about all all about the country all night, and on this particular night, she left the main road to wander over the Vancouver's lands, where trespassers, especially at night, were not welcomed. Why were they not welcomed? Well, because the opposite of welcomed is attacked, probably, right? (laughs) But no one saw her, and it seemed that she had... So how did they know she was there? Well, because they found her corpse. No one saw her, and it seemed that she had made her way to a part where no one was likely to see her. What is she doing there at night? For no, none of the keepers would have entered house planting by night. So the garden, the, the estate um, servants don't go there at night, right? Her body was found there at noon on the following day, lying under the tall bracken, again with the bracken, right? Dead, but without any mark of violence upon it. That's really interesting. If it's a werewolf, there should be somebody torn apart, right? Should be mm-hmm. blood. This is not exactly a werewolf story. It no. is a werewolf story, but not exactly. It was considered yeah. that she had died in a fit. A fit. Yeah, that's right? there's a nice euphemism. Yeah, and that's that's why at the end, I think Mice is right. He's dead. This naturally added to the ill repute of Hell's planting. The woman's death caused considerable <laughs> sensation in the village. Sir Edric sent a messenger to the married sister with whom she had lived, saying that he wished to pay all the funeral expenses. This offer, as John Marsh recalled with satisfaction, was refused. Yeah. So what what is he doing out there late at night? When John Marsh goes out there late at night? Hmm. Trying to prove something in the way that the the son uh, the Sir Edric tried to prove something, right? He goes out yeah. there with a with a um, a rug, a flask of whiskey, and a revolver, <laughs> and then wakens from sleep, right? He's not sitting there trying to stay awake all night. That's another whole genre of story where you spend the night in a haunted house you know mm-hmm. right. revolver in hand there's a story called the red room by hg wells that does exactly that um but rather um he's he goes there and falls asleep and then wakens in the middle of the night um what does he say to his buddy uh that it wasn't a cow <laughs> it wasn't a cow it was definitely not <laughs> <Sad>. a cow <laughs> I'm inclined to agree, agree with you, although it's absurd to trust in the immediate impressions of a man just awakened. What you heard was probably a stray cow. <laughs> no cow, said Edric impartially. There's a low wall all around the place. Not much of a wall, but too much for a cow. So that kind of writing right there, that's totally not Lovecraft, right? Yeah. If he ever had to talk about a cow, he wouldn't talk about it that way. Yeah. So uh, let me read that preceding paragraph. Uh, the one preceding the cow. 
Look here, old man. I wouldn't tell this to anyone but yourself. I did think I heard something. About the middle of the night, I was awakened by a cry. Whose cry? I can only say that it was the kind of cry that frightened me. I sat up, and at that moment, I heard some great heavy thing go swishing through the bracken behind me at, the, at a great rate. Then all was still. I looked about, and I couldn't find nothing. Oh, sorry, but I could find nothing. At last I argued, as I would argue now, that a man who is just awake is only half awake, and that his powers of observation, by hearing or any other sense, are not to be trusted. I even persuaded myself to go to sleep again. What? Would you go to sleep again? <laughs> and there was no more disturbance. However, there is a real danger there now. In the heart of the plantation, there are some eaves and a subterranean spring. Lately, there has been some slight subsidence there, and it's and the same sort of thing will happen again, in all probability. Yep. <laughs> I, wi- I wired today for an expert to come and look at the place. He has replied that he will come on Monday. The legend says that when the thing that lives in house planting comes up to the hall of the vancarists, uh, the planting comes up to the hall. Sorry. The legend says that when the thing that lives in house planting comes up to the hall the vanquests will be ended. So that is assumingly why he thinks that it's the undying thing that it's come up to the hall, right? Mm-hmm. It stays yeah. in the it yeah. stays in the in the planting normally. Right. Yeah. It only does its hunting in the planting or whatever, or it only haunts the planting. If I cut down the trees and break up the place with a charge of dynamite, I shouldn't wonder if I spoiled that legend. Now, that again, uh, so a lot of people uh, in criticizing this story, they say that um, if if there's something wrong with the story, it's that it's kind of familiar. It runs on um, familiar tracks, you know, it's a well-beaten path. And I think that that's true, but only in it. I think it's doing things that other stories do as well. But I don't think anybody's like. I don't think he's copying a lot of people. But you can certainly feel the resonances. Um, now there is a story by um, John Buchan. Paul, were you on this show? I did it with Mr. Jim Moon. I'm, I'm not sure if you. Maybe it was just him and me. A uh, story called "The Grove of Ashtaroth." No, I was on that one. You were on that one. Okay, you remember. Yeah. How do you remember the plot roughly? Yeah, yeah, the 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 house the house in South Africa, the the ancient spirit that had been chased to there and living in living there in the grove, and mm-hmm. it's it's eventual destruction and the and the tragedy of that that small goddess being uh, driven away from the world. And and do you remember what the friend's plan was to save his friend from the curse of the land? It was um, to dynamite. Dynamite, yeah, dynamite. Dynamite the 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 tower and the trees and kill yeah, all was, the sacred birds that are yeah. there. And I think that it's like this is. I mean, you could read it as sort of colonial fiction, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that one. Um, this one, this is. I think it's got to be set in England, right? It's it's, <clears throat> and that's from 1910. So. All of these, uh, he's, that's later than this story. So, I don't know if Bucken read this, but 
I don't think so. I think people are just they're thinking along the same thoughts. It's almost mm-hmm. like we we have this um yeah, genetic understanding of of curse, the family curse. And in that story in the Grove of Ashtaroth, it's because he's he's a Jew and Ashtaroth is a biblical uh goddess. Mm-hmm. Right? And that there's that connection between them. Not quite the Ukul face, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure how to spell Ukul either. I, I, I think there's a U and an E in there, but <laughs> I could be wrong. Um, do you, yeah. Do you think he really believes that if he if he blows it up, the legend will be spoiled? Or do you think he's just saying this to, to soothe himself? Well, he he does say that, you know, he's going to do it, right? No, I, know, I believe he's going to do it. I know he's going to plans on doing it but my question is is he like this this, do you think he believes the legend enough that he totally believes it's going to happen and this and he's just trying to sort of forestall it or make himself feel better even though he expects i think i think he knows uh that it's real underneath right (laughs) that he's he really is cursed but is he's a modern person and and can't it's kind of like the opposite of The Hound of the Baskervilles. In The Hound of the Baskervilles, the new Canadian uh, version of um, uh, the Baskerville, Sir Sir John or whatever, Sir Henry, I think is the name of the new Baskerville. He he doesn't believe at all in curses, right? right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it turns out that he was right not to believe. But right. that he also didn't see that somebody was... Uh, you know, doing something. He thought it was bullshit, right? That okay. there's yeah. nothing. But on the other hand, some weird things are happening. So I'll employ this detective and see what okay. happens. Okay. Um, now I remember what I, now I remember what I was going to say about this. Go oh, for do it. you want to say? Okay. So so he doesn't necessarily have to be the end of the line, right? The, right. It will happen. The, the it comes when it will end when he comes into the house. But the fact that he is about to blow up the house planting makes him the end of the line because if yes. you're going to do this like yes. it's like he he brought it on him he brought the the thing on himself by doing this yes you're right it, it, it's it, it's very neat this story like like it, the fact yeah. that he says please look through these papers for me right yeah, so i yeah. don't have to see, see the, the truth parts. yeah right and then the friend yeah. who again is a doctor right he's a, a a doctor who doesn't practice all these rich guys right they just they just inherit yes. <laughs> inherit money and then he's he's interested in science and and things beyond science i think it says in here isn't that it doesn't say that science. yes he's inter- yeah that's but it's something like yeah. that aha here it is uh, his father had made him a fortune in the firm of gordon gordon and bird ha 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 oh bird the old style was still retained at the bank, although there is no longer Gordon in the firm. Andrew Gordon had a handsome allowance from his father and also had inherited money from his mother. So right. uh, these are good things, right? Positive inheritances, we think. He, ha- he had taken a degree as a doctor of medicine. He did not practice, but was still interested in science, especially in out-of-the-way science. Hence his interest in his friend, right? Yeah. <laughs> he was unmarried, gifted with perpetual good health, and interested in life. Popular. His friendship with Sir Edric dated from their college days. It had it had for some years been almost certain that Sir Edric 
would marry his friend's sister, Ray Guerdon. And her name is R-A-Y. I thought, uh, in listening to it, I thought, oh, it's going to be R-A-E or something. Ray, we normally think of as a, as a uh, male name, right? Raymond. Oh, right. Although actual betrothal had only been announced that season. Now, that is also a funny word, right? Because we wouldn't use that word anymore. But in season, is it's like it's mating time, you know? But right. in, in, in the old system, right, the, when the girls have coming out parties and all that, like now she's a f- introduced to society, right? She's eligible. Who wants her? Right? <laughs> and all the young men line up and then she gets to ch- choose between them or her parents get to choose between them or whatever, how it is. Um, it was assumed, like this is, this is, he knows he's getting married a long time ago, right? Mm-hmm. And now he's getting his, 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 stuff in order could it be that he is tr- actually trying to bring on an end to his family line well, and the curse that's before? this is the, for her yeah so he says i'm gonna fix up the place right yeah. <laughs> the architecture problem is you know this wall is in the wrong spot i'm gonna make this her morning room get it uh, right yeah but uh, that's what that's the thing about ray though like that's a ray of sunshine right, right. bringing yeah she never shows up in the story proper, no, she, right? No. But uh, how on earth can I bring Ray to such a place, right? Ingra- yeah. it, built with such ingrained malice and vexatiousness that one can't even live in it as it is. <laughs> I have to go sleep in the planting, uh-huh. right? Like yeah. he knows on a certain level, I think that he is a he is the heir to the curse. That's why it's. Yeah. Both dead and alive. Yeah. Right? The family. It, it, I mean, that's why his name is Edric. Again, right? I, did you think that they were all Edrics? Because we didn't hear anybody. No, I don't else think they think. are all Edrics. I, I think there is something saying that it's um, that he again was an Edric or something like that. Oh, so I, okay. I mean, they could all be Edrics, I suppose. Because oh, we didn't hear. That's why mm-hmm. I wasn't. Um, there's another part I want to talk about. Uh, the wolf attack. Do you remember that? Yes. Okay. Uh-huh. I didn't think much about it the first time, uh, but then in a rereading, um, let's see. Uh, maybe this is the right one. My great grandfather kept wolves. I can't say why. <laughs> why can't you say? Uh, do you remember the portrait of him? No, not the one when he was a boy. The other. It hangs on the staircase. There's now a group of wolves in one corner of the picture. I was looking carefully at the picture one day and thought I detected some overpainting in that corner. Indeed, it was done so roughly that a child would have noticed it if the picture had been hung in a better light. I had moved over the painting by a, I had the I had the overpainting removed by a good man and underneath there was that group of wolves depicted. Well, one of these wolves must have escaped, got into house planting, <laughs> scared <laughs> an old woman or two that would start a story and human mendacity would have done the rest. Yeah, so they scared the old woman, but they didn't eat her. Right. Yes, um, said Guerdon meditatively. That doesn't sound improbable. But why did your great-grandfather have the wolves painted out? Question mark. End of chapter. Um, um, may I go back to my yes. theory about... so? When he when when Alice asked him to get rid of the wolves, 
mm-hmm. um, and he didn't, she got bit. By I don't wolf. think she got bit. <laughs> it says, wow, okay. What did it Let's, say? Let me, oh, yeah, I'll read this. Okay, so this is the other, this is uh, page 123. The third baronet had already been told, uh, as has already been told, had lived the latter part of his life after his second wife's death in peace and quietness. Of him, John Marsh remembered nothing, of course, and could only recall the few fragments of information that had been handed down to him. He had been told that Sir Edric, who had traveled a good deal, at one time kept wolves, intending to train them to serve as dogs, as in hunting dogs. And, by the way, the family curse in the Hound of the Baskervilles is caused by a hunting party uh, where the original Baskerville, who was a wicked man, chased down a woman uh, who he basically wanted to have sex with, um, who was not his wife, uh, with his dogs um, in, in like a hunt, as in a fox hunt uh-huh. sort of thing, intending to train them to serve as dogs. That's as in dogs for hunting, right? These wolves were not kept under the proper restraint and came a kind of terror to to the neighborhood, you think? <laughs> Lady Vancourest, Van, Van his second wife, had asked him frequently to destroy these beasts. But Sir Edric, although it was said that he loved his second wife even more than he hated his first... Love that line. I know. Yeah. ...was obstinate when any of his whims were crossed and put, off, put her off with promises. He's lying to her. Yeah, yeah, one day. Yeah. Then one day, Lady Vancourest herself was attacked by the wolves. Doesn't say... Okay, doesn't she, was say a, bitten. Still she was attacked yes. by the wolves. Yes, and then the next line, she was not bitten. That's very specific. Oh, but she okay. was badly frightened. Why did they frighten okay. her so? So that's very interesting, though. She was badly frightened. And what does this thing, what does this undying thing do? Let me, let me, let me read the next, because uh, there's a couple of lines here that I think are indicative of okay. what, what's going on. That filled Sir Edric with remorse, and when it was too late, mm-hmm. he went out into the yard where the wolves were kept yeah. and shot them all. A <laughs> few, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. A few months afterwards, how many? I'm guessing nine. <laughs> <laughs> a few months afterwards, Lady Vancouras died in a ch- in childbirth. Uh huh. You want to explain uh-huh. why yeah. she had such a weird baby? It was queer things, John Marsh noted that it had come just at the time house planting began to get such a bad name. <laughs> the uh-huh. fourth baronet was John Marsh, considered the worst of his race. It was yeah. uh, it was to him that the old madwoman had made her prophecy, an ancient, an incident that Marsh himself had witnessed in childhood and still vividly remembered. Yeah. So that old woman, that's... that's the nurse, right? That's the nurse, and that's the one who, yeah, who I, died. I, she, 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 she was attacked by the wolves, as in she was raped by the wolves, right? And then that's uh, the werewolf baby. I mean, sometimes you have it as, you know, uh, they say the reason I've, I have, uh, um, I have magical powers is because my mom was spooked by a, by a a goose when <laughs> she was pregnant or something, right? You've heard that ex- sort of explanation for why somebody has superpower, uh, uh, supernatural goose? powers. No, <laughs> yeah, or some, uh, you know, it's, it, maybe it's not a goose, like uh, yeah. a raven cod at her window when I right. when she was yeah. pregnant That's, with me. Yeah, 
right? Or like she, a black cat crossed her path and scratched her or something, right? So it's <laughs> it's cursing the the pregnancy, and yeah. obviously she dies of the of the incident. But they also don't say it had a snout, right? So, but they never ever say male or female on the on the baby. They always uh-huh. say it or the thing. Yeah. Right? Something. I think that's so. It's, this is such a good story. Um, when I was um, researching mm-hmm. undying, because I because when I when I first read it, I was like, why is it called undying, not undead? Mm-hmm. Like, what is this undying thing? So um, I was looking up undying online, and I and I found myself mm-hmm. uh, reading Plato on oh. the immortality of the soul. Oh yeah, that's an interesting diversion. Well, it is because undying was highlighted in it. But let me just read you this because I found it very interesting. What then in a human body causes it to be living? Not merely the presence of the idea of life, but also the presence in the body of the soul, which besides. The idea of the soul contains and carries with it the idea of life. Hence, at the approach of death, as snow at the approach of heat, soul must either withdraw or perish, for it contains the idea of life and cannot admit the idea of death. That is, it is undying. So, if the undying thing is imperishable, it cannot perish. It must withdraw on the approach to it of death. Therefore, if the undying thing is imperishable, soul, besides being undying, would be imperishable. Mm-hmm. He's making a, a philosophical argument for the existence of life after death. Um, yeah. But you can draw it as, like, the family... So, whatever thing that was killed and not killed in the uh, planting, raised and not raised in the caves... Yeah. Um... It's, it's eternal now. Like it's, it's eternal it's, it's, in the curse of the family, right? Well, I don't know. I think it's eternal, eternal. Because yeah, well, okay. because our our yeah. What happened to what happened died to, here? What happened he to died. Edric? He's not. He did, did. He go into the caves and then it collapsed. Well, Edric, the the family is now dead. Yeah, we assume. But we assume. But that doesn't mean that the thing is dead. No, we don't. Oh. It's, it's, I, like, if you don't it's not, know anything, right? It's undying. Right? It's undying. You know, like it's still there. Eternal. Yeah. Kind of like, like a kind of like a family family curse. I mean, it just it just never gets discharged. Doctor Dennison right. in in his um, he's the he's the uh, obstetrician, right? He he says um. Uh, it could be a small matter of, you know, just covering the mouth and the nostrils or whatever. Um, but then we see him again in the appendage to the the uh, letter, um, the confession. So I'll just read that section. Already yeah. upon me is the, has the punishment fallen, and the devil's wolves do seem to hunt me in my nights sleeply, in my sleep nightly. So again, this points to it being um, symbolic wolves, like the ghost of the werewolves, yeah, the ghost yeah, of the wolves, right. rather than right, right, right. But I know that there is worse to come. The thing that I took to Hell's Planting is dead. Yet it will come back again to the hall, and there will be vancarests, and then will the vancarests be at an end. 
This writing I have committed to chance, neither showing it nor hiding it, and leaving it to chance if any man shall read it. Underneath, there was a line written in darker ink, so that means it's more recent, right? And in uh -huh. quite a different handwriting, it was dated, dated 15 years later, and the initials were R.D. appended. So that's the... And, and what does he say? It is not dead. I do not think it will ever die. And that's after the 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 baron uh, the baronet has died, right? Yeah. Presumably, he's con he's con it's his deathbed confession, right? He writes it down, and and then this guy, yeah, he's not. It's, I, I found this paper. It's not dead. I don't think it will ever die. The curse I, I is real. Yeah, you cannot make a plea with God, and and that that's it. You make the plea. It, you're, it's it's eternal. Hell is damnation forever. Isn't so. isn't this interesting in light of um, of the Wolf Leader? How different this story feels than the Wolf Leader does. Wolf Wolf Leader's like light and fluffy. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And this one's like dreaded and cursed. Yeah. And it's yeah. the same. It's the same premise. Is like you know make a deal with the devil. The devil's wolves. All that stuff. Right. And, you know, I'm going to lead these wolves. There's a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> Why, a wolf walking on hind legs, right? There, there's something um, very cool about the, these. This story should be much better known than it is. And I understand, like, it. it is hard to, like, I'm worried about people listening to the podcast in the first half and, and sort of not giving it the fair shake that we had to because we were forced to because me putting it on the schedule and saying, hey, let's do this show. <laughs> yeah. right? Because if you started reading it and you didn't, you know, you're slightly distracted, you, you're not doing it for homework. I don't think you will be as impressed with it as you should be. Because this is, this, the story makes you work for it, but once you work for it, it's really interesting. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. It's yeah. really well done. I'm, I think that it would make a fabulous movie or a, a wonderful comic book. I mean, a comic book would be very easy to do, right? It's, it's even structured in a way that's got like four issues or whatever. Um, wow. Everybody should read this story if, if they are at all interested in old, old uh, weird tales because this is exactly that. Right. Wolf tales. Wolf tales. Well, do we do we cover everything? Yes. Yeah. Cool. Uh, what do you think of the names? I, I was a bit thrown off by the names. Um, Mans Mansteff is the name of the hall, their mm -hmm. estate. Mansteff. It sounds they, like they, man's death, right? Yeah, they, <laughs> they, they feel oddly British enough. I mean, you were mentioning before about uh -huh. uh, this is probably settled set in Britain. It's, it sounds British enough like, okay, yeah. But I think even English rather than like Wales or, or, or Ireland. Or, or Scotland, yeah. Yeah, it feels yeah. very... So someplace in the Midlands. Yeah. Now, um, there, the other thing is is that planting, Hal's planting, it sounds yeah, a little what, bit like hell. Sounds, yeah, it sounds like when he's reading it, it sounds very much like hell's planting. Yeah, you're wondering how it's spelled, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I want to also point out that there's an orchard, and I think orchards are really interesting. I, you guys, you know, I do. Orchards the, like apple orchards? Yeah. So 
I do these um, uh, roof bear drawings, you know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I really enjoy you, doing you them. Share, and you share them. You give it. You gave us that calendar. Afterwards. Right. Right. <laughs> so, uh, like, one of the characters is um, is uh, called Sellerfeller, the creature that lives in the basement of the house that used to be chained to the wall in the basement. It's kind of based on a couple of stories. Uh, one's called That Only a Mother by Judith Merrill, and uh, uh, another one by Richard Matheson. Um, I'm, tra- I'm blanking on the name for it. But there's this creature that lives in the basement that the parents have rejected, um, especially in the Judith Merrill. Ju- Judith Merrill one, it's it's like um, uh, the baby was probably born with no, no limbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and... Uh, the mother thinks it's wonderful, but the father is freaked out by it. And um, the uh, the one by Matheson is narrated by the creature. Um, and you think the parents are just monsters because they're treating this child very badly. And the child doesn't know anything except what it learns from an old magazine that's down in the basement and what it sees out the window. So it's it's beautiful to read and wonderful. The whole point of that story to me is like this is the powerful revelation, you know, that at the end of the story, the reason the parents are so mean in a certain way is because the creature looks monstrous, right? Like it it has the wrong number of limbs, the wrong skin color, all that sort of horror. It can walk upside down on the ceiling, right? (laughs) There's all sorts of (laughs) weirdness going on there. Um, And in Roof Bear World, everybody's sort of friendly, um, nobody's getting torn apart generally, but in the real world, you know, when you do mean stuff to your kids, uh, it doesn't work out so well. So I, I know that like, I, I start putting places around the house that I, I for some reason, I, I put an orchard outside of the hill. I'm like, why do I have an orchard there? Right. And then I, I said like, okay, what's in the orchard? Oh, and then they follow these tracks, that, and what do they find? Oh, Pan lives in the in the orchard, right? I'm like, oh, oh, Pan's dangerous. <laughs> Better get away from that, right? So, there's this like, I notice these sort of stories uh, that I have read leak into the into the world, and it's it's like exploring your your unconscious, your your um, genetic memory for mm. for what we're really afraid of. It's always night in Roof Bear World, right? It's never daytime um, because the night is freaky, right? Uh, And I I just think think that reading a story like this, it tells you a kind of truth that that no, no science can tell you. Not that I don't believe in science. I think science is wonderful. But um, this is not science. This is art. Right. This is telling us about sort of what to do with our with our problems on the earth. Right. Don't be mean to uh, your children. It can come back and haunt you. Don't be mean (laughs) to your neighbors. It can come back and haunt haunt your children. You know, Uh Mm -hmm. and uh, I think that that's where the power in this story comes from is is it's telling a kind of truth that is uh, obviously completely fictional. (laughs) but also very powerful. And uh, yeah. I, dig this, it. I dig it a this lot. This latest incarnation of Edric is very, very, very different from the the original mm-hmm. 
you know, who I, I am evil. I am bad. I have a black heart. I killed my first wife. Right. Through my actions. And this other one is like, he's like, he's like walking sunshine. You know, he's full of smiles and he's bright yeah. and he looks younger than and he is. he's trying is. to make his, his future wife's home a happy one, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in his, in his uh, final hours, he's actually, he's trying to save his friend too, right? That's why yep. he locks, locks, locks himself. And so when he has that dialogue, right, with the creature, what are you? Who are you? Um, is he looking in a mirror? <laughs> right? <laughs> because what the spirit like this is? Uh, what's it eating? I don't. I don't think there's any good answers. I wish Mr. Jim Moon was here. I, I'd love yeah, to hear he, his thoughts on this. Yeah. Dang it. Dang it. And Marissa, dang it. We lost two oh, well, they folks. missed out. They got, more for us they, and they more got for the listeners. Hung, hanging out in the orchard by house plant house planting. <laughs> I hope not. I hope not. Oh, let's see. Yeah. Marissa getting attacked by coyotes and, <laughs> uh, uh, and, and me getting attacked by black flies. Uh, well, at least uh, that was on my trip anyway. I was gonna say. Um, I was gonna say, and uh, Mr. Jim Moon getting attacked by a kangaroo. <laughs> 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 We're getting a punch up with a <laughs> kangaroo. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.